morning, Southbridge. It's great to be gathered together today. Thank you so much for coming. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you. Thanks so much for checking out our church and uh, giving us a chance to perhaps be your church family. And I just want to ask you if you do one thing, if it's your first time here, maybe it's your second time you didn't do it the first time you were here. If you look in your worship program, there's a little card in there. We call it the connection card. If you just pull that out right now, begin to fill it out. Put your name on there. The bit of information that'd be most helpful to us. If you could tell us how you heard about us as a church, that'd be really helpful. And then if you turn that card in after the service at the first time guest kiosk, we make a donation to a ministry. We've got a gift to give you. You can read some information about that in your worship program. But uh, if you'd begin filling that out right now, uh, I'd just like to tell the rest of the church about this Sunday is your last Sunday to sign up for Southbridge Serves. We talked about that at the beginning with the announcements that were there at the very beginning. That next weekend we're doing what's called Southbridge Serves. We're trying to dominate our city with the love of Christ in different ways, whether it's to the schools, uh, different ministries in town, uh, fire department, uh, meadow, the Meadows uh, Senior Living Facility that's right over here. We're going to try and serve in as many ways as possible. And so I want to challenge you, today when you leave, there's a table out there. If you haven't signed up already, go sign up. Sign up with your uh, e-group, sign up with your family, sign up as an individual, sign up whatever fits in your time, sign up what fits with your gifting, just sign up. Okay, so there's a sign up. Opportunities to sign up. We want our whole church to be a part of that so we can uh, just really make a, a fingerprint on our community with the love of Christ. And then on Sunday night, um, we're going to be having a chili cook-off. It'll be our first time ever doing that. And so if you're really good at making chili, you can sign up for that. If you just like to eat chili, you can come eat some chili. I was told that I'm going to be one of the judges at this thing. I don't know that I'm a chili expert. I told the first service, I'll give you a little tip if you're cooking it. I like sweet things, so put some brown sugar in there, okay? If it's real spicy, I'm probably not picking that one, just so you know. Um, little tips, just little tips. You can beat all those, you know, pagans that didn't come to church today, whatever, uh, and their chili cook-off. And uh, if you just like to eat it, come check it out. I think the fire chief's going to be one of the other judges. There's going to be some other people there, and uh, we're going to have a great time, but we're going to, really, it's going to be a culmination of the service that we've done all weekend, and so check that out. Onto the table, and if you don't sign out the table today, maybe you forget, or you get out the door and you had to get the kids and all that stuff. You can sign up through our website throughout the week or our Facebook page, and so you can do that as well. And what we're going to do today is we're beginning a, a brand new series called Trending Now. You may remember in September, for a couple of weeks, I asked you two questions. One was, if you could ask God anything, what would you ask Him? And the other question was, if your neighbor could ask God anything, what would he or she ask God? And so you wrote down questions, they were anonymous questions, and we've taken those questions, compiled them, wondering what, are, what is it that you're thinking about? So what is the trending uh, questions that are, that are there? And so in this series, we're going to talk about everything from sexual issues and sexuality that, was, that were asked to today's topic, why does bad stuff happen? Why suffering? If God is good, why bad stuff? If God is loving, why does it seem like he doesn't love me? If God is in control and he's powerful, why does he allow? And you fill in the blank with all this stuff. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to be in the book of Job. And so if you want to get there quick, you can. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to jump into the scriptures together. The book of Job is right before the Psalms in the Old Testament. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you that we get to gather together in your name. Thank you that you are present, that you are here. Thank you that you care about every circumstance, every hair on our head, every detail in our lives, and none of it goes unnoticed. And as insignificant as we can feel sometimes that you would love us, that you would love us so much you'd send your son, I pray you'd overwhelm us with that today. I pray that as people think about their own personal pain and their own personal suffering today, that you'd bring healing. I, I pray for those who don't know you, that maybe have a, a false front of faith in their life, that you would confront that today and bring them to a real relationship with you. I pray for those who do know you, that you would encourage them and help them to know you more and to understand better what it is that you're doing, why it is that you do the things you do. God, speak to us today through your words, supernaturally through my lips. Do something special. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it doesn't take an expert researcher to look around our world and figure out things aren't the way they should be. You just look at the news, and you see the thing that's happening in West Africa right now with the Ebola breaking out that's now come to Dallas, Texas, and, and Washington, D.C. 
Uh, it's here in the United States. I heard one person say that the Ebola breakout, uh, that there is estimated somewhere between 1 million and 1.2 million people may die before this is all over with. That's not right. And then you look at another news headline and you see what's happening with ISIS in the Middle East, beheading people on video, putting it on TV. Uh, taken three, they took 300 guys one time, executed them, shot them in the back of the head, execution style. That's not right. And then there's a guy in Oklahoma, just cut somebody's head off, his coworker. Somebody else in Oklahoma said, that's what we do. That's not right. Plane crashing into buildings, you've got planes disappearing. You've got planes that crash, you've got babies that die. Cancer. We give numbers of human trafficking. We have no idea how many kids are bought and sold into sex trafficking every year. Things are not right. And that's around the world. Those are news headlines. We don't even get into our own personal lives. And while all that stuff's happening, then we gather together and we sing a song that God is so good. We sing a song about how loving he is, how almighty and how powerful he is. But isn't there a tension there? Like if he's almighty and he's all powerful, why doesn't he stop this? And if he's good, why this bad? And if he's loving, it sure doesn't seem like he loves me when I'm in the middle of the pain. And so we have these why questions. And no one's exempt. Believer, non-believer, follower of God, not a follower of God. And sometimes it seems like the people who aren't followers of God, life goes smoother and easier for them. Why? Just this past week, we prayed for our worship pastor, the professional man of God. Because his son was in the hospital having seizures as often as every five minutes. Why? And the questions I know that you're asking, we asked that question to our whole church. If you could ask God anything, what would you ask him? If your neighbor could ask God anything, what do you think he or she would ask? I'm going to share with you some of the responses you gave. A lot of people asked the general question. It was the most asked question, by the way. Why does bad stuff happen? And some people asked it generally. Why suffering? Why bad stuff? Some people were real personal. They asked questions like this. Why is there cancer? That's probably not theoretical. They asked this. Why did you allow my husband to die? Why don't you protect the innocent? Probably thinking of kids. Why did my babies die? Not just thinking about kids in general. Why did my dad go through so much pain? Why did we lose our twins? Why do you make people wait to get help? That's probably coming from someone who's in the suffering. Somebody asked about their neighbor who they said was Jewish. Says, my neighbor says, I can't believe in a God who allows six million Jews to be killed. Why? Why'd you allow that, God? Why me? Why now? Why this suffering? Don't you care? Are you here? What's happening? In these moments, we feel abandoned. And these are complex questions. It's complicated. It's difficult. And they deserve more than just simple answers. And so today, it's not going to be the only message we do on this. We're going to talk about this again next week, too. But we're going to look at one of the answers that the Scriptures give. Because the Scriptures, well, there's multiple answers to this question. Give multiple answers. We're going to look at one of them today, to the why questions that we have for God. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Job. In Job chapter 1, we're going to cover the whole chapter today, Lord willing. I'll read the first uh, section of it, uh, the first two sections of it here in just a moment. But as you're turning there into the book of Job, one of the things I love about the Bible is it doesn't just talk philosophically about issues like this. You know, this is the kind of topic that you could get two theologians, two philosophers together, and they could just talk without end, with no conclusion, just about all the ideas and all the concepts that are there. And the Bible doesn't do that. This is real life stuff. And it touches the depths of our soul, the real life things that happen. And so what the Bible does is it enters into the real life of a real person. And it's this man who's named Job. And one of the things we see about Job, and the author goes out of his way to point out to us, is what happens in his life, it's not fair. He doesn't deserve this. 
That's why he says throughout the scripture at the beginning, he's blameless, he's upright, he shuns evil, he fears God, and then God himself says he fears God, he shuns evil, he's blameless, he's upright. In other words, what happens in his life is not fair. I read one commentator that said this, there are few people who have suffered more, and apart from Jesus, there's no one who deserved it less. And what we see in Job's life is here's this guy, many people debate about his name. What does his name mean? Some people think it means the persecuted one. Some people think it means, where is the heavenly father? And certainly if you went through what Job went through, you'd probably wonder that. Where are you, God? Have you abandoned me? Have you left me? Do you care about me? Because we see a guy who suffers in every way. So if you've suffered in any way, you can relate to Job. He suffers financially. He suffers emotionally. He suffers physically. He suffers in relationships. He suffers in every way if you read through the whole book. And we get the setting in verses 1 through 5 of his life. So this passage in chapter 1 really breaks down into three different scenes. We'll read the first scene, verses 1 through 5, and the second scene, verses 6 through 12, here right now. Join me in Job chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. It doesn't mean he was sinless. In fact, we see that Job's very aware of sin. He's offering sacrifices for his kid's sin. In this passage, later in the book of Job, chapter 13, 14, he acknowledges his own sin. We're not saying that he's not a sinner. But what the author's pointing out to us is what you're about to see happen, he doesn't deserve this. It's not because of his sin. He's blameless. He's upright. He's a guy who loves God. He's got moral integrity. He's whole. He's an honest guy. He's the kind of guy you want to do well. It says here, he, he feared God. He shunned evil. And he did do well. Look at this. He had seven sons, three daughters. It's a number of completion. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. In other words, he was loaded. Okay, they didn't keep track of wealth by stocks and bonds and portfolios and retirement accounts. They did by cattle, by servants, and by land, and he had all that stuff. And then it talks a little bit more about his family. His sons used to make, take turns holding feasts in their homes, probably birthday parties. And they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so the family got along with each other. They would invite everybody together. And then to get the heart of Job, verse 5, when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he'd sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking perhaps, maybe, my children have sinned. And so just to look out for my kids, spiritual leader of his family, maybe they've sinned and cursed God in their hearts, and they don't even realize they've done it. And that was Job's regular custom. So we see what this guy is like. Verses 6 through 12, we get the second scene that Job doesn't know is happening. It says, one day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God asked the question. There's no one like him. And then he repeats verse 1. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. This is clear. This isn't because of his sin. And Satan responds, verses 9 through 11, Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him? You've made his life easy. His household and everything he has. You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then verse 12, The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Here we see the sovereignty of God. He's able to put restrictions on Satan. But also he allows this bad stuff to happen. And what happens, and we'll read the rest of the chapter in just a moment, but it gets real bad. And it gets bad fast. And it will leave any one of us, any human, our natural inclination, asking the question, why? Why this? Why me? And let me tell you, there's a simple answer to that question. 
The simple answer to the why question, to every why question, is this. It's sin. We live in a sin-broken, sin-fallen world. Here's how we know it. Because when you go to the beginning of the Bible, before there was sin, there were no divorces tearing families apart. There was no cancer taking place. There was no pain in childbirth, in fact. Ladies, can you imagine that? There was no frustrations at work. Can you imagine that? There's no arguments in relationships. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no pain. There was no suffering. There were no rapes. There were no beheadings. There was no sexual abuse. No one's dad got hurt. No one's babies died. But then sin, Genesis chapter 3. And then you see we live in this sin-fallen, sin-broken world, and that's where we live. You get to the end of the Bible, and you guess what happens? Jesus deals with sin. He binds Satan. He rules. He reigns. Everyone who's in Christ, everyone who knows Jesus, gets to go to be with him where there's no sin and no suffering and no pain and no divorce and no cancer and no abuse and no difficulty and no Hurricane Katrina's and no crime and no... Anything bad you can think of, it's not there because there's no sin. So the real simple answer to the why question is because of sin. But then what some people will then think, and what you see, Job's got some friends who come tell him this kind of stuff later in the book. Don't quote verses out of context in Job, by the way. Because his friends come and say some stuff that sounds really good. And at the end of the book, God says, you better repent for saying that stuff. Because you don't know what you're talking about. What we will naturally think, because we think that the sin in the world is why there's, there's problems. So if there's problems in my personal life, it must be because of my personal sin. That's not necessarily true. And that's what we're being shown here in the book of Job. Is it's not because of your sin necessarily. The bad stuff happens in your life. Because what's happening here is all about God's glorious purposes. And God has glorious purposes even in our pain that's beyond this life. See, God's glorious purposes... In our pain, our personal pain, when our dad suffers, when the babies die, when there's divorce, when people, planes fly into buildings, like fill in the blank with all the bad stuff. It's beyond this life, the answer. That's what we see in this passage of scripture. But you know what Satan would love to do? Satan's real, we see in this passage. And what Satan would love to do for you, one, he'd love for you to think he's not real. But what he'd love for you to do is just think that he's just trying to get you to do mischief. Just try to do naughty things. Just do bad stuff. One of his most deceptive and tricky things he wants to do is get you to have a short-term view on life, on your life, and on your circumstances. And you see him do it. All, every, when he's ever he's trying to trick people, he's trying to do people in. You see Genesis chapter 3. What happens with Eve in the garden? When she's about to eat the fruit, she's not thinking to herself, if I do this, there's going to be pain in childbirth, there's going to be difficulty in labor, sin's going to enter all of mankind. She sees the fruit, she sees it's good to eat right here, right now, short-term thinking. And one of the things that happens for us as we get into short-term thinking, we think that life is just about this life. See this trick all the time by Satan. Think about Matthew chapter 4, you can read on your own. Jesus Christ himself is being tempted by Satan. And you know what Satan does? He says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days at that point. He has the power to turn stones into bread. And what Satan's trying to do is to get him to think short term. It's all about right here. It's all about right now. Don't think about being the sinless sacrifice for all of humanity's sins. Think about the fact that you're hungry. You have the ability. You could even glorify yourself by doing these things. Now, it would be sin because you'd be walking out of God's plan. If you can just get him to think short term, then he's got Jesus. Jesus, well, tempted just like us, doesn't sin. Doesn't think short term. See, it's about more than just this life. I'm trying to get you to think about this. Think about when you were in high school. This analogy won't work for some of you. You're in high school. But anybody who's got some distance, a year, 10 years, some of you have got a lot of distance between you and high school. 
Think about high school and what it was like to live in that world. Things that were so important then are not important to you now, are they? Think about how important it was, whatever, for you. I was thinking about it this week, and I remember when I was in high school, one time sitting in a class, it was a biology class, and I remember my biology teacher standing up, they had just done an announcement over the loudspeaker about football games, and I had performed well at this particular football game, and when the announcement was over with, my teacher decided he was going to humiliate me, and he said, Scott, do you know in two weeks, no one's going to care about that football game? Which, at that moment, I thought, this guy's a jerk. <laughs> now I look back and I think, he was right though. Like two weeks later, no one cared about that football game two weeks earlier. Now, I still think he was being a jerk at that moment. So in case you're watching. It's just like a jerk. <laughs> but he's right. But I bet if I went back and I could somehow transport myself to sit in that desk at that moment, that football game was probably really important to me then. And if you can go back to high school, you can probably think of things that were really important to you. Do you remember when somebody broke up with you and you felt devastated? And now you probably look back and are like, man, I'm sure glad that happened. Or, or something happened, somebody was, said words to you that hurt and that was so important then, or you, you, know, you didn't do well on this test, or you didn't wear the right kind of pants, or whatever it was at that moment, you didn't wear the right shirt, you had the bad hair, mom cut your hair, and it didn't go well, and it was the end of the world. And now you look back at it, and you're like, who cares? But now you watch the news, watch the news, and you see kids that get bullied, they take their own lives. And people who get broken up with by their, their, the, the person that they were so in love with at that moment, they take their own lives. Do you know why? Because they're focused in on this. This is the world. This is what's happening. And you know what we do? Back up. We do that with this life. It's all about my career. It's all about my reputation. It's all about my kids. If you make life all about this life, then something gets taken away from this life, that's devastating. But God has glorious purposes, even in your pain, and they're about more than just this life. Now, if you look at just this life, look at verses 1 through 5. Job had it made. Look at what it says there. It says that he's blameless. He loves God. He's upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. And then you start looking at his life in general. And we read through that and you see he's got a bunch of cattle and all that stuff. And you're like, yeah, what does all that mean? Well, that's, that means he's rich. And you start reading through some of it. I read it this week and you're like, he's got a bunch of sheep. Okay. And he's got some camels. Like if you came up to me and gave me one camel, he's got 3,000 camels. If you came up to me under the awning today after, after service and said, oh, Pastor Scott, my family would love to give you a camel. I'd be like, I'm good. <laughs> that's cool. I don't want a camel. And what am I going to do with a camel? I was watching a video this week. Have you ever been to those Christmas Eve services where they bring animals in? It's pretty cool and the kids love it. I was watching a, like a 30-second clip on YouTube of a Christmas Eve service. Somebody was bringing a camel down the, the aisle, and it fell on all the people. Because <laughs> I wasn't one of the people. It was really funny. <laughs> if I was one of the people, I'd probably think, this is terrible. What are you talking about this for? You know, camels stink. Like Camels are nasty. They eat all kinds of stuff. Who wants a camel? This guy's got 3,000 camels. 7,000 sheep. What is this? What's he doing? Well, sheep were used for wool. He probably owns a clothing business. Job probably owns his own clothing line. Camels were used for transportation. What are you going to do with 3,000 of them? He probably owns a transportation line. You've got a guy with a diversified portfolio here. He's got oxen. Oxen would be used in agricultural uh, industry, so farming maybe. Maybe he owns a restaurant because it would be the food industry. Maybe he's in the restaurant business. He's got these female donkeys, it says here. Now, female donkeys at that time produced a milk that was considered a delicacy. And so this is like, you might even be able to, and I'm probably going on a limb too far here, but uh, you could say he owned like the first earth fair. <laughs> Specialty food. He's got the delicacy stuff here, right? It's like a Whole Foods. These are probably free-range female donkeys. <laughs> Gluten-free, free-range donkeys. 
So he's got a fancy business. He's got transportation business. He's got a clothing business. He's got money. And then it says that, that he's the, the, the greatest man of all the men among the East. So this is the kind of guy that not only is he doing well, you want him to do well. He's honest. He's upright. He's got integrity. He loves his family. He's got 10 kids, seven sons, a number of perfection, 10 children total, number of completion. What the author's showing us here is Job has the perfect life. The family gets along with each other, but you know how family gatherings are. Even if you love each other, you still you have judgmental thoughts, sleep in, slip in, gossip slips in. Sometimes you get in an argument. Job knows all that. And he cares for his kids. And so whenever they gather together, he's especially a man in prayer, offering sacrifices for them. Because they might even curse God in their hearts and not even know it, not even realize it. And so he wants to make sure they're covered. And so he's praying for them. And that's his life, verses 1 through 5. And then there's something else that happens. Scene 2. Job doesn't know this is happening. But we go to verse 6. And verse 6, uh, join me there again. It says this. One day, the angels... God's created beings, angelic beings, come to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Now, there's a lot to learn just from this. One, Satan has access to heaven. Two, Satan's real. Chuck Swindoll talks about him in his book uh, on Job, which I recommend if you want to read more about Job, and he talks about how Satan was the most brilliant of all the creatures. He didn't lose his brilliance when he fell. He's still beautiful. He's still alluring. He's still smart. He's got intellect, we see in this passage. He's got volition, we see in this passage. He's got emotion, we see in this very passage. And what happens here is very unique. It's the only chapter in the Bible that we have where we see basically the covers pulled back in a conversation between Satan and God. Satan's real. He'd love nothing more than for you to think he's not real. But if you're going to think he's real, maybe you could just think he's some cute little person who sits on your shoulder with a pitchfork and tempts you. That couldn't be further from the truth. He's real in his number one agenda is to come between you and your relationship with God. And he wants to hinder you, and he wants to deceive you, and he wants to destroy you. And that's what we see here. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth. And it reminds me of a passage from the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter's writing to suffering believers in Peter. And he says to them, 1 Peter chapter 5, be self-controlled and alert. Wake up. Notice this. Your enemy, you have an enemy, one who opposes you. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. That's what he's like, looking for someone to devour, destroy. So what does Peter say? Resist him. How? Standing firm in the faith, believe God, believe his promises, because you know that there are brothers throughout the world that are undergoing the same kind of suffering you are. And so this fixes all your suffering, saying, no, you're not the only one that suffered. You're not alone in this. And you know who's in the middle of the suffering? It's Satan in the middle of the suffering because he's trying to destroy you. And he wants you to turn your back on God. And what does is, what is Peter tell us? He says, stay firm in the faith. So what Satan's been doing, he's been doing that. He's been looking for people to devour, looking for people to destroy. He says, that's how Satan answered. I mean, going back and forth throughout the earth. In verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, if I'm Job, I'm thinking, <laughs> uh, you guys don't need to talk about me at all. Hey, I'll just fly under the radar. You could do what you do up there. I don't want anything to do with it. Job doesn't know any of this is happening, though. And then look what God says next. He emphasizes verse 1. The divinely inspired author had already said about Job, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. There were other people that were righteous, but there's no one like Job. He's blameless. He's upright. He's a man who fears God. He shuns evil. And then Satan replies, does Job fear God for nothing, for no reason, Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him? You've made his life so easy and so nice. 
and his household and everything he has. You've blessed the work of his hands and, and his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. You've made him rich. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and surely he will curse you to your face. Verses 9 through 11, what Satan is saying here in essence is this. The only reason that Job worships you is because you pay him. In other words, it's not really even a slight on Job as much as Satan's spitting in God's face. And he's saying, you can't get anyone to worship you unless you buy them. Unless there's health, unless there's wealth, unless there's happiness, they're not going to worship you. They don't have a relationship with you, God. They've got a transaction with you. It's a contract. It's kind of like, have you ever seen... Have you ever seen a guy who's really old, maybe like 95 years old, and he's really wealthy? He's a billionaire, we'll say. And he's married to some woman who's like 25, and she's a supermodel. And now you're laughing because you probably had thoughts in your head before. Because you see that, and you think to yourself, he must be really funny. (laughs) No? He must have a great personality, though. You think she's only with him for his money. That's what we all think. I know we're not supposed to judge. That happens. That's what we think. And that's what Satan's saying to Job here, or Satan's saying to God about Job here. He's only with you because you're, you're the sugar daddy. You take care of everything. You, you, if you didn't have a, a contract with him, if you broke the contract, he'd curse you to your face. And there's a gut check here for many of us that we need to ask ourselves, do we really have a relationship with God? Relationships based on love. Or do we have a contract with God? God, I'll do what you want me to do as long as you do what I want you to do. See, what happens oftentimes when difficult stuff comes into play is what, it exposes our entitlement mentality. We think we deserve something. We think God owes us something. Why? Only you can answer that question. Why do you think God owes you something? Why are we getting angry at him? Why are we accusing him of things? What do we have that we deserve? Because all we really deserve is death. He gave us life. And we don't deserve to be in relationship with him. It's because of our sin. The only reason we have a relationship with him is because of grace. His relationship through Jesus Christ. The clothes on our back. People in our lives. It's all been given to us by him. But we get mad. And you know what that exposes? We don't have a relationship with God. We've got a contract with God. And so you need a, a gut check question is, do you have a relationship with God or do you have a contract with God? Because what oftentimes happens is when the suffering comes, when difficulty comes, and it will come, it comes for everybody. It comes for believers, it comes for non-believers, it comes for all of us. When it comes, it exposes our faith. James says it like this in James chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3. He says, consider it pure joy, brothers, my brothers, because only a believer could do this. He's speaking to other believers when he says this. Only a believer could actually have joy in suffering. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, and there are many kinds. There are people that do bad stuff to us. There are consequences for our own bad decisions. There's natural disasters that take place. There's bad stuff just because this place is broken. There's all kinds of bad stuff. When any of it happens, consider it joy. But then the Bible doesn't just leave us there like this bland command with no feeling behind it. Here's what you're supposed to do. Now just buckle up and do it. It says, here's why. Here's the reason, verse 3. Because, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. That word for testing there, it's a word for refining of metals. It's like when gold's being tested and it gets melted, it gets so hot, it turns into liquid and gets melted down so the impurities can come out. And what oftentimes happens in our lives is that the heat gets turned up and the suffering, the impurities of our faith are exposed. And the question for us is this, 
do we have a real relationship with God or is it a contract? You do this and I'll do this. And I'm not doing this unless you're going to do your thing. And so if you don't do the thing that I think that you're supposed to do, that it's my contract that I made up of how I think my life's supposed to go because I have an entitlement mentality, then you broke my contract, God. Now I'm breaking our relationship. I'm mad. I'm going to curse you. I'm going to tell you you're bad. I'm going to tell you the things you didn't do. And that's what, Job's, or what Satan's saying that Job's going to do here. God knows Job's heart. And what's happening here is about more than just what takes place in Job's life. Keep in mind, though, Job doesn't know this conversation took place. Job doesn't see verses 6 through 12. Job's living in verses 1 through 5, and then we join him back in verse 13, scene 3. So we went to earth, Job's life. We went up to heaven. We got a glimpse of what was taking place there. Then we come back to earth, verse 13. One day, probably the same day that they were gathering together for these festivities, these birthday parties at the oldest brother's house, when Job's offering sacrifices to God. On the very day that Job is offering sacrifices to God, when his sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. So the food industry. And the Sabaeans attacked. The Sabaeans were known thieves. They'd be like ISIS. The terrorists came and they took them. They took the food industry. They put the servants to the sword. They cut their heads off. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Verse 16, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God, probably lightning from heaven, came from the sky and burned up the sheep. How many sheep did he have? 7,000. That wasn't one lightning bolt. This is a natural disaster. And the servants, the sheep, all of them are burned up. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans. Another group of people formed three raiding parties. They, they strategized this. They've been planning this out. It just happened. And they swept down on your camels. They, they hijacked the travel industry. And they carried them off. They put the servants to the sword. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, verse 18, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters, pause. Okay, the business, first business fails. We still got other businesses. And the next one, okay, that's not good. Third one, we started once, we can start again. But now as kids. And you know the news isn't going to be good, right? The pattern, we're already in it. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting, they were having a good time. And they were drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. They weren't doing anything wrong, they were celebrating with one another, just enjoying each other. When suddenly a mighty wind, probably a tornado, swept in front of the desert, struck the four corners of the house, not the town, not the city, just that house, Job. Do you hate me? Why me? Why this? Why now? What does it say? It collapsed on them. Doesn't sound like a pleasant death. And they're all dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. This is awful. This is terrible news. The businesses fall apart. That's bad. But then all ten kids in one day? Not one child. He had ten kids. And now he's childless. In one day? What do you think his wife felt like? We give his wife a hard time in chapter two. What do you think she felt like in that moment? What do you think he felt like? This is the worst thing that could possibly happen to Job. What's the worst thing that's happened to you? You probably thought about it. You probably thought about it when we first started talking about this topic. 
What's the worst moment you've had in your life? And then and think a little bit more. I'm going to assume that you have that one in your mind. Think a little bit more. What are the top four or five? What are the worst things that have happened? Financial, physical, maybe someone you love was lost. Maybe something bad happened in their life. Think about it for myself. I remember getting a phone call about my dad. The life was going smooth. Everything was going great. Get a phone call, and he's being careful to do a hospital. And everything changes in a phone call. Think about how quick this happened. Some of you have gotten those kind of phone calls. I remember a doctor's diagnosis for my wife. That was a difficult, dark moment. I remember, I remember being in the midst of struggling with anxiety to the point where I thought I was going crazy. And so some of you, you start stacking yours up. Think about them. Four, five. You got your top four or five? And when did they happen in your life? Maybe different phases, different stages, different years. Can you imagine if all four or five happened in one day? Can you imagine if they all happened simultaneously? Look at what happens here. The author's making it really clear. This just happens one after the other. One day, he's offering sacrifices to God, by the way. And while he was still speaking, verse 16, and while he was still speaking, verse 17, and while he was still speaking, verse 18, that's when you stop answering the phone. Because somebody called and it was bad. Somebody else called and it was bad. And after that, I can't take anymore. And the last one's the worst one. Ten kids in one day. All gone. And here's the deal. Job doesn't know why. Don't forget, Job doesn't know about verses 6 through 12. Job's living verses 1 through 5. And then verses 13 through 18 happen. He never sees verses 6 through 12. He doesn't know why. What happens here in this passage of Scripture, it's like the divinely inspired author of Scripture is letting us in on a secret. It's the only chapter in the Bible we get that has a conversation like this, and it's like he's saying, hey, come here. Job doesn't know why, but there is a why. And most of us, we live in verses 1 through 5 and verses 13 through 18. We're living our life and we're doing, you know, we go to church and we take care of our kids and we're nice people and we love God and we pray. Many of us, some of you don't, but I, I just, many of us who love God, we pray and bad stuff still happens and we don't know why and we don't get verses 6 through 12. But here's what we can know. You might not know the why. You can always know there's a why. Because it's bigger than what's just happening here in this life. It's bigger than just what you see. You start trying to interpret what you see, you get yourself in trouble. Think about this. We'll talk about this in light of some other Bible stories. Some of this looks like a natural disaster, right? You've got fire coming from heaven. You've got a tornado coming through. What are some other natural disasters we see in the Bible? How about Noah and the flood? The reason why Noah and the flood happens, we get a glimpse of in the Bible. It's because of God's wrath and his anger towards sin in the world. And he says, I regret that I made these men. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to keep this one guy and his family. That's not what's happening here. In fact, the opposite is happening here. God loves Job. So one time, what looks like natural disaster to us is wrath. One time, it's God's love. Let me tell you something. Next time Hurricane Katrina happens, tsunami comes, you know what you should say? Nothing. Because we don't know. We don't know if it's God's judgment. We don't know if God's got some other plan going on. We don't know if it was God's love. We honestly don't know. If you jump into the book of Job, what happens is he gets three friends to come. They start giving him advice. It's rock-solid logic. It's wrong. Because they don't know verses 6 through 12. Let's take uh, David, for example. David loses a child in the Bible. It's because he's being judged for his sin with Bathsheba. Job loses seven kids here in this passage and three daughters. 
The author goes out of the way to say, this doesn't have anything to do with Job's sin. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. To us, looks like the same thing from our circumstances. But we don't know. Job doesn't know. He doesn't know why. But we can know there's a why. That's why the author gives us verses 6 through 12. That's why we get to read it. He's living it. Most of us, when we're living our lives, we don't get to read the conversations that are happening, the different things that are taking place, but there's more than this is life. And God's sovereign over all of it. God's got glorious purposes in everything in our life. God's got glorious purposes in your pain, but they're beyond this life. And so you might not know the why, you can always know there's a why. You might not know why there's pain, but your pain is never in vain. God's using it. And he, the Romans 8, 28 says he works it all out for our good. But for good for those who love him. That's only for believers, by the way, that promise. It's all for our good. It's not that the things are good. It's not good that 10 kids died. It's not good that the businesses fell apart. That's not good. But God works it out for good and for his glory. Because God takes the worst circumstances and he can create the best good. And so we end up seeing in this book, you read all of Job's 42 chapters. Job not once gets to see verses 6 through 12. He doesn't get the answer. He doesn't know why. And he wrestles with it. And things get difficult mentally for Job. Things get difficult in his marriage. Things get difficult with his friends. Things get difficult in his relationship with God. And he never gets told why. But we're shown verses 6 through 12 so that we can know that there is a why. That there's a glorious purpose in our pain. And it's beyond this life. And we see the worst circumstances so that we know that even in our worst circumstances, God can take those and do the greatest good. Think about it in light of the worst circumstances that have ever happened in this world. The cross of Jesus Christ. We sing songs about it and how good it is. That's because it was good for us. Try and imagine being an eyewitness to the crucifixion of Jesus. You don't have any scripture to tell you about what's happening in that moment. You don't, have, you don't know the end of the story that Jesus rises from the dead. You don't know any of that. You're watching what happens as they take a guy who, who healed kids. Who, who made people who had been sick for years and years of their life not sick anymore. A guy who fed people. You know, he's not a bad guy. And he disagrees with the religious leaders of the day. But then you see the religious leaders strip his clothes off and beat him. And he's dripping blood and he's standing there naked and they put a thorn crown on his head. And they're going to kill him. You know that's not right. This is injustice. It doesn't matter whether you're a believer in God or not a believer in God. You look at it and you go, this isn't right. This is wrong what's happening here. And then they take him and they put him on a cross naked and they nail him to this cross to die. And he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What are you thinking at that moment? Then darkness covers the earth. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's forsaken by God. That is the worst moment in human history. They're murdering Jesus. And at that moment, he takes upon our sin. All of the sin of the world. And God does forsake him because he becomes sin. And he becomes sin so that we could become his righteousness. So that we could experience the greatest good. Something we don't deserve. The forgiveness of our sins. And so God takes the worst moment in human history and provides the greatest good. That we can now have a relationship with him. Not because we're good. Not because we earned it. Not because we're blameless. Not because we're upright. But we're seen as blameless. And we're seen as upright because we're seen as his son Jesus if we've accepted the gift. If we receive Jesus to be our Savior, because we recognize his love, not a business transaction, recognize how much he loved us, that he'd give his life for us, so that God let his own son be murdered. The worst circumstances, 
to create the greatest good that we could be reconciled to him. If he can do that, then he can take your worst circumstances and do the greatest good. That's what he's going to do with Job. It's about so much more than his life. Can you imagine what it was like for Job? He doesn't know verses 6 through 12 through his whole life. All 42 chapters we read of this book, after that's done with, he doesn't know verses 6 through 12. Imagine what it was like when he got to heaven. He's reconciled with his kids. He's back with all 10 of them. And it's not about mismemories because there's no suffering and there's no pain. And there's no heartache. And there's no despair and there's no loneliness and there's no disease. And there's no difficulty and there's no loss. And then he reads verses 6 through 12 in this book that he didn't know was written. That's got his name on it. Can you imagine what it must have been like? I was just living verses 1 through 5. And then verses 13 through 18 happened. I didn't know about verses 6 through 12. God, you were doing all that? Why were you talking about me? What's it going to be like for some of us? And reconciled with those that we've lost. We see them and it's like a moment didn't even go by. And God wipes every tear from our eyes. And the suffering's gone. And then we see, you know what? It was about a lot more. It was so important to me in that moment. But it was so much more than that. You know something else interesting about this passage is it's all about Job here in chapter 1. The book's got his name on it. God's talking about him. The author's talking about him. Everybody's talking about him. But Job hasn't said a word. We don't have one word from Job in these first 20 verses. Look what happens next, though. Verse 20. He loses 10 kids in one day. All of his businesses fall apart. And at this, Job got up. He tore his robe. That's deep agony. He shaved his head. That's symbolic of the, to say that the glory of this life has left me. And then he fell to the ground. And if you don't read the next words, what do you think they're going to say? I was talking with a class about this last week. I fell to the ground and quit. It's over. I'm done. He fell to the ground and he gave up. He fell to the ground and he cried out in mercy. He yelled, he cursed God. But it says he fell to the ground in worship and said, and here's his first words in this book. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. There's some perspective on possessions. I didn't bring anything in. I'm not taking anything out. Everything I have in the meantime is on loan from me then. Everything's been given to me. Who's the giver? God. And so when he calls the loan back sooner than I want him to, I might not like that, but he gave it. He loaned it to me. He gave me the money. He gave me the clothes. He gave me the people, the relationships. He gave me the kids. He gave me the, the jobs. All that stuff. I'm not owed. See, what this exposes in many of our lives is we have such a mentality of entitlement. Like we're owed something. That like God should be giving us something. Why? You have to answer that yourself. Job says, naked I came, naked I'll depart. And then notice this, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Most of us acknowledge the first part, the Lord gives. But he doesn't say, and the Sabaeans have taken away. Or the tornado has taken away. Or Satan has taken away. What he's saying here is, God, I recognize you're sovereign over all of it. Nothing happens in my life that doesn't pass through your hands. The Lord gave and the Lord has ultimately taken away. And he can do that because he's the Lord. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. May his name be, and what would we say here? If we were in Job's situation, may his name be 
Job says, praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by cursing God, by charging God with wrongdoing. Let me paraphrase this. Satan, you just got punked. Remember verses 9 through 11? You cut off the transaction, and he will surely curse you to your face. And what we've just seen here is, you know what, this isn't about a transaction. He's got a relationship. This relationship's based on love. And so I realize, anything that happens in my life, God, you love me. You do love me. And this shirt, this isn't good. Ten, losing ten kids is not good. That is bad. And no one's trying to say that that's good. But you work it out for good. And I trust that because you're sovereign. You're sovereign in the situation. You're sovereign over every situation. Nothing happens. It doesn't pass through your hands. And so I trust you. And what we see here in Job's life is his relationship wasn't based on a transaction. It wasn't just a contract. He had a real relationship with God. What oftentimes happens in our lives is when the suffering comes in, and it's a favor for us, by the way, even when it doesn't go well, it tests our faith. And it reveals to us whether we have a transaction, a contract with God, or we have a real relationship with God. Here's the thing that we can know. We don't always know the why. We can always know that there's a why. Because God is the God of the why. Will we trust him? Father, I come before you today. I pray for those who have yet to trust you, yet to trust you as their Savior. And maybe because they're angry about something that happened, maybe because there was suffering, maybe because there was difficulty, maybe because there was loss, God, I pray that you'd point them to your loss, that you lost your only son, that you let your son be murdered so that we could know you, so that we could come to you, so that we could have a relationship with you. And if there was any other way, you'd have done a different way, but you said there's no other way, that you, you through your son, that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. There's no way to you except for through him, so that had to happen. And God, we don't understand all the details of why things happen here on this earth, but we believe that your ways are higher than our ways, and we trust you. And God, I pray for those that are hurting, that you bring healing today, that we'd be able to cast our cares upon you, that we'd be able to cast our burdens on you, that you'd carry them. And God, I pray for these momentary afflictions in this world that we would look to your glory that far surpassed the things that happen here on this earth. God, that you'd show us that the life's about more than this life, that you've got glorious purposes, and that while we might not always know verses 6 through 12, that those verses 6 through 12 exist. And we might not always know the why, but there is a why, and that you are sovereign over the why. And God, when we lose people, thank you for letting us borrow them for a short time. And when there's pain, thank you for refining our faith. God, help us to actually have joy. Help us to actually rejoice in our suffering so that the world would then see that and say, there's something different happening here. There's something unique. This isn't just a transaction. This isn't some give me health, give me wealth, give me happiness, and then I'll do what you want. There's some payment contract. But that you really love us, and you've got a plan for us that's way bigger than what we could know, but we trust. God, help us worship you as the God of the why. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.